Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. I don't know how many of you were watching TV last night around 11.30 or so. You're probably thinking I should have been in bed, which I agree with you, I should have, but I wasn't. And um, I happened on a movie called The Game Plan. Does anyone remember The Game Plan with The Rock? It's a football movie. Um, it was a very touching movie. I think there were a couple moments where uh, I actually began to cry because it's, it's a father-child type movie. And the basis is basically uh, that The Rock, which is really all that I know him of and maybe want to know him as, um, is a, a star quarterback, Joe Kingman, who's never won the big game. And so his legacy is at risk. And uh, his daughter shows up at his door one day, a daughter that he didn't even know that he has. And, you know, it's the typical cheesy comedy uh, father-daughter movie that brings tears to your eyes throughout all of it. But in the midst of the big game, as he's getting ready to go back into the game and ultimately win it for them, because that's a happy ending in how American movies work. But he, he tells to his daughter, uh, he says to her, win or lose today, you are the best thing that has ever happened to me. And uh, that's really cool because I think it encompasses not only the heart of most parents, but also the heart of God, the love that he has for children and how much they really matter to him. So I want to show us a really quick video. Um, it's the Blue Sunday video. And again, Blue Sunday, as we've already shared, is uh, part the capstone Sunday of National uh, Prevention for Abuse Month. So if you guys want to show that video. Um, well, this is going to be a hard message, I think, in some ways, not for the church to hear, but for me to actually get through in the last uh, six to eight weeks, just uh, listening to stories of human trafficking and seeing this video. Um, I've spent a lot of time in a lot of righteous anger, uh, self-righteous anger, tears, um, uh, surprising moments, just because of how frustrating this is. Uh, what we've seen here in the video is that in the year 2010, 1,560 children died because of abuse. Um, and as you saw, 80% of that is at the hands of their parents. And it's close to 700,000 um, who've experienced abuse uh, but haven't died. And the abuse takes many forms. It's uh, physical abuse, the shaking of children, the beating of children. Um, we've heard stories of kids being thrown against walls and all kinds of stuff. In the news, it seems... Every other week there is some child who has uh, lost their life to uh, a mom's boyfriend or whoever or something. There's uh, also verbal abuse, and it's something that maybe even that many of you have experienced growing up. And I, I realize as we're getting ready to share this that there are some things that maybe we're not just striking a chord towards the children who are children now, but some of you who have been children and have grown up in forms of abuse. And as verbal abuse, maybe you've heard that you are nothing uh, that you're stupid, that you'll never amount to anything, that you're useless, I wish you'd never been born, that kind of stuff is also abuse. But there's also the crime of sexual abuse, which also may, and I would say most likely even someone here has probably been sexually abused. I can remember the first church that I went to in the latter years of being there at that church, it seemed that uh, almost every month there was another girl coming forward and saying, I've been sexually abused in my past. 
Years ago, I spoke at a high school retreat and shared about sexual abuse. And three girls eventually talked to their counselors. And the sad thing about that is not one of them had any support or did anything about it and probably went back to those situations of abuse. It's a crime. It's wrong. What's even worse today is something called human trafficking. It is the fastest growing industry behind drugs and guns. The cartels and the mafia are getting into it because the nice thing about human trafficking is that when you sell a girl or a little boy, you can sell them again and again and again and again and again. Sell a gun, you only sell it once. Sell drugs, you only sell it once. But a person over and over, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and make tons of money on that. It said that there are 27 million slaves worldwide, often for the sex trade. The prime age that is looked for is from 12 to 17. The kids that we have sitting down the hall right now in worship service, mainly the girls. What do they look for? The top price that you get is for a virgin. And the tricky thing that they now get is they get doctors who come in and re-sew these girls so that they can sell them at a higher price again. This is a problem that exists in our world. And we'd like to say, hey, you know what? It's in Thailand. It's in, it's in India. It's in, in Cambodia. It's here in our country. O'Hare Airport is known as the second largest gateway in the United States for human trafficking. That means some 20 miles from here, there's probably someone right now or today going through the gates of O'Hare who's being trafficked. It's a crime. The thing about it is, what do we do? Just knowing about it is, is, is difficult and frustrating and, and tear-provoking as it is. But what is it that we can actually do? I mean, we're just a bunch of people who really don't have enough to take on some cartel or mafia. So what is it that we actually can do? I want to look at some topics in Scripture, and I know this is a topical message, so there's going to be some cherry-picking. I apologize, but don't apologize for that in the same breath, because I want us to see how God views children, bring that to our own lives, and how, as a church, we can actually do something about one of the biggest, fastest-growing industries and crimes in our world today. Turn with me to Psalm 127. And I want us to look at verses 3 through 5. Solomon writes this. He says, Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate. One thing I want to say is this. What this passage doesn't mean quite clearly is if you don't have children of your own, you are not blessed of God. It doesn't mean that at all. The unfortunate reality that many married couples face today is that they can't have children. But this verse isn't saying just because you haven't had children doesn't mean that God's favor is not on your life. So I want to get that across clearly because anyone who has children, you must realize ultimately that you have been given a gift from God. The word here is kind of like a boon, a blessing. Now, how many of you like getting gifts? 
I mean, we're all going to raise our hand. We all love gifts. How many of you love those special gifts that are well thought out that somebody gives to you because they've taken a lot of time and thought and effort in order to give you that gift because they know that once you receive it, you'll be blessed? I think that's the most special gift that you can give. Sometimes as men, we give roses and chocolates because that is the thing that we're supposed to do, which is a nice thing. I'm not saying please don't do that. But what I'm saying is the more thought out gift, the more practical gift is the one that is embraced. And what this verse, I think, teaches us is that when God gives us children, he gives us a boon. He gives us a blessing. It is something that has been well thought out. That God has given to you as a parent for some reason, his reason that he knows, but he has given you this boon, he has given you this blessing, he has given you this gift. And so when you look at your children, what you see are not children, but you see gifts. Now I know some of you are thinking, you haven't seen my kids. (laughs) Sometimes I just wonder if they're what they are. Because they're a little bit noisy or adventurous or risky or whatever it is. And sometimes we do get frustrated with our children. But even in the midst of our frustration, they are still gifts. God has given us this favor, these boons, these gifts. And, 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 and for the reason ultimately is to be a blessing. He seeks to bless us with our children. I think the greatest blessing of being a parent is that you begin to understand the father heart of God towards you. I know that I've shared with you before that some of my greatest worship experiences have been at Chuck E. Cheese's because it is when I see that big rat singing happy birthday to my children and the tears come to my eyes because my child is the center of attention. I realize I realize this is the way God feels towards me. And not just me, but all of us. And not just all of us, but children as well. Because that is the Father heart of God. To give that blessing. To give that gift. So that we might understand what His heart is for us. That's what children are. They are a gift. They give us insight. They reveal to us God's heart. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Because not only are children a gift from God, but God then requires us to respond. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. It starts out with fathers, but the word can actually be parents in the original language. But we'll say, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The idea here is that Paul is trying to communicate something that didn't make sense to the culture at his time. In fact, in the times of Paul, what would happen is often a child would be born and they would bring the child to the father who was seated. And if the child liked the child, I mean, if the father liked the child, he would pick him or her up and say, we'll keep him or her. If the child looked at the child and really didn't like what he saw and he got up and walked away, they would sell the child. Maybe to another slave, maybe to a prostitute. It didn't matter. So when Paul here is saying, hey, listen, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord in an implicit way or an implied manner. He is saying children matter to God. Bring them up is the idea. 
Raise them. No matter what they are like or what you think about your child, your child is a gift from God and raise them. Raise them in a way. Don't frustrate them. Don't provoke them. Don't push them away from God. Don't lead them towards rebelling against God. Instead, lead them towards God. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. In the context of love. In a sense, what God is saying, your children are a gift to you. I have given them to you as a blessing, as a boon. As a sign of my favor upon your life. Raise them up in the context of love. Love them like I love you. Like I have given everything that I can to be a blessing. Do the same for your children. And lead them in the ways of God. Teach them. Instruct them. Train them as to what is right. Train them how to follow God. Because they matter. Don't look at children and say, oh, they're just children. We'll wait till later when they get older and we can do something with them. There's a lot of things that we can learn from children. For those of you that sit up in front of you, every week you miss the joy of watching these kids run back and forth. I I, I miss sitting all the way in back and watching Arthur and Lisa's two little girls dance during worship. That, to me, is a sense of, like, wow, that's a gift in and of itself to see children expressing in worship what's on their heart. So scripture, the Bible, God tells us children are a gift and parents as parents shepherd your children. Oh, what do shepherds do? Shepherds know their sheep, they lead their sheep, they feed their sheep, and they protect their sheep. Parents are providers and protectors. The thing that frightens me more often than not is sometimes as parents, We don't protect our children. And the scary thing is, at least for me, is that it's very likely, most likely possible, that even here today in our church, there are parents who do not understand that their children are a gift from God and are not only shepherding them, but abusing them. I'd like to stand here and say, I know for sure we're not like that. But I can't say that. Statistics would probably say there's more than one family that is struggling through this issue. We are called by Scripture to be shepherds of our children, to shepherd them in the ways of God, to encourage, strengthen them, to love them like God loves them. And when we fail, rather than holding on to that or even hiding that, but to seek help, which is what that big sign was. Help. If you need help, get help. It's a scary thing to do, actually, to say, hey, this is what I've done as a parent. I'm frightened of that. But I would rather have you admit to that. Face some of the consequences. I can't take those away. But a greater sense of saying, I love my children enough that this is not what I want to do, and I know it, and I need help. We're to lead our children in the ways of God. Again, repeat it. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. In 
And here specifically, <clears throat> this is what Moses writes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You see, what really Moses is saying is everywhere you go and every time of day and everything that happens, speak to your children about God. Speak to your children about God. The scary thing is that we're always telling our children about God in some way, shape, or form. When we're abusing them, we're saying something about God. Their future, their view of God is affected of how we are, affected by how we are as parents. No one here is perfect. I don't want you to leave here today and say, I yelled at my kids once, I feel horrible. We all yell at our kids. And as they get older, you'll find sometimes you yell at them every day. But here's the one thing that makes a parent that really love their kids is you feel bad about it. I don't think I can ever remember after having yelled at my kids, and trust me, it has happened a lot, that I ever walked away from that and I said, I feel pretty good. I won that argument. No, I always feel horrible. Mind you, that doesn't make me a great parent because a great parent or a perfect parent wouldn't have done that in the first place. But when it happens, I always feel terrible because in my mind, the realization that these children are a gift, I'm supposed to bring them up in the ways of God, and yet I have failed them by my words and by my actions. Blue Sunday is not a call for perfect parenting. It is a call to those parents who are anything but perfect but continue to fail again and are abusive, either physically, verbally, or sexually. And to say, I must do something for myself. I must do something for my children. Because our children are a gift from God and they are important to God. And we must do something. It's with that in mind that we realize that not only do we need to watch out for our personal children, but the children in our church family and the children in our community and the children in our world. I think that little that song that says Jesus loves the children of the world. All the children of the world. So when we hear of things like abuse and neglect, the call that God has for the church is to step up and to realize that all children are a gift from God. And even though we might be this not, even though we might not be the specific parents of those children, He has called His church to be parents to those who are fatherless or motherless. It is a call upon our lives to do something in our communities when we see so many children experiencing so much pain that we can actually do something about it. Take, for instance, human trafficking. It would be nice to say, you know what, it would be really cool if the government would just take care of all of it. Went to a conference two Saturdays ago, and you know what they said? The government isn't going to do anything about it, basically. And the reason is, is because they don't have money. 
It's not that they don't want to, but they don't have the money to be able to do something about it. Which is a perfect clarion call for the church to say, then we will stand in the gap for these children. We will stand up and do something because you know what? We don't need the money anyway, but we know that God loves children and he has called us to be his hands and his feet. So we will stand in the gap. We will help you out. We will do something. And the church does it. For instance, Lydia House, faith-based, church-based, by Christians, seeking to reach families who are struggling through abuse and neglect issues. It's how we got Janny, Lydia House. It was supposed to be temporary, and obviously it hasn't turned into temporary. It's been a little bit longer. So if you're sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, I don't want to have another kid. Two is enough, or three is enough, or whatever. But it's something that you can do for a week sometimes. Sometimes it's a weekend or a month or two to help a family be able to get itself back on the feet and be a witness as well and say, hey, this is something that Jesus would do because he cares for you and knows that you know that you're not a good parent right now and that you could hurt your child and you want to get your child out of that environment so you can get yourself together and keep your child safe. There is nothing wrong with admitting that you cannot do it. Especially if you're going to hurt your child. It is absolutely a great idea to say, I am putting my child in danger. Please help me for now. It says nothing about you as a parent. It says a lot about the season of life that you're in. Because I think a lot of people will say, you know what, man, it, it just shows that I'm weak. It shows that I can't do it. It shows that I'm a bad parent. No, the bad parent is the one who continues to abuse their child, hides it, and doesn't seek help. You're not the perfect parent, in a sense. You may not be a good parent at that moment, but the better parent is the one who says, help us. That's something that we can do. Now, we might think that the problem here is, again, something that, especially with human trafficking, isn't a part of our world. Pastor Allen was telling me earlier this year they were going to do a raid, a human trafficking raid here in Hoffman Estates. About six to eight weeks ago in Mount Prospect, they arrested a man for human trafficking. Heard a story of a 17-year-old girl graduates high school and decides that instead of going to college, she's going to earn some money. And so she answers a Craigslist ad for a nanny position and finds herself in sex trade for seven years. Seven years because she was looking for a job. Because she wanted to do something to be able to pay for college. It's happening all around us. Someone mentioned to me that every day, on average, one child goes missing from the Mall of America. It's not because they get lost in the stores. It's because someone is taking them. It's right here in America. The lady the other Saturday was sharing that in Michigan, a 12-year-old girl was being sold by her mother for sex. The girl got pregnant. DCFS came in, took the baby because the mom wasn't ready for it, the 12-year-old mom. Two years later, she got pregnant again because all this time her mom is still selling her and they took the second child. Why didn't they take her? I don't know. But it's happening here in the States. And it's something that we as a church can do to be a part of the solution 
rather than <coughs> a part of the problem. There's a lot of things that we can do. What I want to do right now is I want to invite Alex and Olivia up. And one of the things that we can do is not only just foster care, but adoption. And I don't want to give you the idea that everyone here must go out now and adopt a child because it's not easy. It's not an easy process. It's not a cheap process. But it's something that the church does that says we will stand in the gap and these children, whoever they may be, and whatever orphanage they be or whatever, we will stand in the gap and we will give that child hope and a future. So I want to have them come on up. Don't be afraid, guys. And they're going to share a little bit of their story that they've just recently come through. And uh, you'll get to see uh, the picture of of hope and a future in in a pink dress. Well, good morning. And um, I guess standing up here, you get a a new respect for all of our pastors and and the praise team. It's a little uh, intimidating. Um, a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, Young had asked us, I'm sorry, I'm going to introduce ourselves, sorry, this is, my name is Alex, this is my beautiful wife, Olivia, Madeline, Luke, and our new addition, Emma. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, Young had asked us, or has sent us an email to uh, tell your story, give a testimony of uh, what, what we've all been uh, going through for the last uh, six to eight months, and uh I think the easiest way is just to tell a little bit of uh, what's been going on with our lives. But, um, you know, for me, all along, uh, I've always wanted a, a bigger family. Not that I wasn't happy with our two big kids, because they're, they're really wonderful kids. But all along, I've, uh, I've wanted um, more kids, whether it be a, another boy or another girl. Um, unfortunately, you need uh, two people to go along with that idea. So all this time, it's just been uh, wanting and desiring, but... Uh, at some points, I've always still had that desire, but sort of repressed it. And, uh, you know, um, seeing the, our kids grow up has been uh, a blessing. And uh, I think uh, as time has gone on, I've gotten a little bit comfortable with things, and it's been pretty easy, good kids, smart, work hard, you know, good at athletics and things. So no real problems. Um, but God has a way of stepping in and sending people um, towards us, towards me, and one of my good friends um, uh, got us started with uh, crossing borders, and, you know, I think that was the first time I actually thought about, well, maybe if we can't have, you know, natural kids, what about adoption? But the step from thinking about adoption to really going through with it is is a huge, uh, huge gap, and it wasn't until actually went to one of his meetings and actually listened to some testimony and actually saw um, what kids um, don't have or kids that are uh, orphaned or in foster care really uh, um, could potentially have that I actually one day went home and, and said, hey, what do you think about adoption? And really taking it more seriously uh, than just talking about it. But uh, I think this is where Olivia's part of the story goes. So. We're going to talk a lot faster, I think, this time than we thought initially. But um, I don't know. I, thanks, Madeline. <laughs> um, you know, it was one of those things where Alex would obviously want more. But 
I don't know, girls, you know how it is, right? I mean, he didn't know the sleepless nights. He didn't know the tantrums. He didn't clean up after all the children. And for me, you know, the kids are older now, and I felt like we were kind of finally getting to the end of our tunnel, and I was going to have more freedom. They're a lot more independent. So why in the world, you know, would I want to go back and start that journey again? So every time he just kind of asked, I would just say it. Absolutely no. You know, every time he'd look longingly at the many children that started coming through the church, I would say, whatever, you know, and I just kind of went on and I had no desire whatsoever. Um, and then, you know, we, we moved into then the current house where we're in now and we, just little things, you know, we had gotten a larger dining table and it sat six and now instead of four just because we thought we'd entertain and when CG people come over we'd have places to sit and every time we had a meal there were two place settings and two seats that were not occupied and initially it was more of kind of just like huh you know and then after a while it was just a little bit annoying because I'm a very balanced kind of a girl and it was a little unsettling and then even more after that it was just becoming a little bit more of a void and a little bit more of a calling but he kept asking, and I kept saying no, because I think internally, the thing that I was really more afraid of than anything was, what if I didn't, adopt, uh, didn't love my adopted child as much as I loved them? What kind of mother would I be if I had another child, a third, who I did not favor as well as Madeline and Luke? And I thought, you know, if I had those worries or reservations, then I had absolutely no business in thinking about becoming an adoptive mom. So I just kind of pushed it out of my mind, you know, and we just kind of lived our, our, our lives. And then I ended up, um, like, this is not a fast process, so like months to years down the line, I read a book um, called Choosing to See by um, Mary Beth Chapman, you know, Stephen Curtis Chapman's wife, and, you know, they had adopted three little girls from China, and the littlest girl had, uh, there was an accident, you know, in the family, and, and she passed away, and she died, and, you know, to be honest, I read the book because I was nosy, and I kind of wanted to know the details as to what had happened, but more in the book than about the details of the accident, it was more of her journey as to how she had ended up adopting the three little ones from, from China, and, you know, her oldest daughter um, was the biggest proponent for adoption and kept saying to her mother, who had very similar reservations and doubts as I did, and had said, you know, any mom is better than no mom. For these kids in orphanages, any mom is better than no mom. And that just kept lingering with me because, you know, I'm thinking, I'm not a stay-at-home mom. You know, she'd have to go to some sort of a child care. That's not fair for her. Or, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be, and I'm not going to be able to all this stuff. So I all those doubts that had come to mind kind of started falling away when I remembered any mom is better than no mom. So, you know, then I started getting a little bit curious about the process, and I know Pastor Frank and Hannah had adopted, and it didn't seem as, a myster as mysterious as it was before, but I was a little bit still chicken, and I didn't want anybody to know. So I kind of just went online and tried to find out what I could find out about adoption online, and I came across a photo listing. Um, for Holt uh, International Agency, which, as it turns out, is what Pastor Frank and Hannah had used. You know, but I was just looking, you know, kind of stalking, but not really committing. And it's very easy to imagine having more if you're not committed to it. So I thought, gosh, you know, it would be great if we could find a set of twins, of course, a boy and a girl, because everybody has to have a friend and everybody has to be balanced, you know. And I thought, if they're from Korea, that would be wonderful. And so I just looked and looked and looked and no joke, about a month after my just looking on Holt, there was a pair of twins from Korea, a boy and a girl who were about six months of age. And that was the first time I thought, oh my gosh, am I supposed to be adopting these little ones? But, you know, 
But then right after that thought was absolutely not, you know, because these twins, you know, they were delivered prematurely, and um, one of them had a severe uh, brain injury, so most likely would develop cerebral palsy. And those were, we had not even discussed any special needs kids, you know. We just thought, you know, a happy, healthy little one. But I don't know, there's something about these kids. So that I just continued to follow them and still didn't say anything, but just watched their pictures. And then month after month after month, and literally almost nine months went by, and I would continue to see them, they were there. And then one day, there was a little sign up underneath their picture that said, I have a home. And I thought, first, I was a little bit sad because in my mind, I had a nursery planned. You know, I had names planned. I had everything planned because to me, they were, it was just kind of fun imagining. But when I realized that, one, that it said, I have a home, I felt this sense of loss, like, you know, oh, my gosh, they were supposed to be mine, and they're, they're not. And then the other thing that I read, too, is the girl had found a home, but not the boy. And when I thought, oh, my gosh, my lack of willingness to take a faith and my lack of action has now resulted in these only two kids that only have each other, and now they're separated. And just the grief and just the regret and just all those emotions kind of came to head, and I was so sad, and I was so ashamed. But more than that, I, I was so surprised at how strongly I felt towards these kids that I had never met, and that was the first time I thought, well, maybe I could actually love another child that's maybe not biological as much as I loved Madeline and Luke. So, you know, we kind of talked a little bit more. He talked. I just kind of didn't let him know I was kind of getting a little bit closer or anything like that. But... Um, one of his friends had adopted two children. They already had three, and then they adopted a little boy from China who had a cleft lip, cleft palate, and now they were in the process of adopting another little girl who has hepatitis B. And they are not medically related whatsoever. But their faith in accepting the child and not just focusing on the, the disease was the first time we had thought, well, maybe we would be open to a child that might have some special needs, especially, you know, we have some resources that other families may not, you know. Some of my best friends are, are cardiologists now, you know, and stuff. And so those are some of the doors that were opening. And then we thought, well, maybe we'll just start looking into Korea because, you know, it's comfortable for us because that's kind of who we are. And so I talked to Holt just to be able to see, you know, what the process is and everything like that. And they said, oh, do you live in Chicago? And I said, yeah, we live in a suburb. And she said, you know, if you live in Chicago, we can't, we can't, there's whatever restrictions there are, we can't uh, place a child from Korea with you. And then I said, well, you know, we're, we're kind of far from Chicago. And then they said, well... <laughs> If you're more than 60 miles from Chicago, they said, we'll consider it. So we Googled it and everything. We are 58.2 miles away. <laughs> we are a suburb of Wisconsin, but still. Um, and even with that 1.8 miles, Holt said, no, we, we can't help you. And at that time, the doors for Korea were closing, you know, and we're getting older, and there's very strict requirements, and the wait for a healthy child was long, and even a special needs child, at least according to that agency, we would not be eligible for. And so we thought, well, you know, God, we tried, you know, oh, well, you know, and we thought we would close that door. But then, you know, the kids along this time, because we wanted to make sure that, you know, it wasn't just a, our decisions that they were there, too. And so we had first talked about We told you beforehand. No, I didn't tell you about Holt. Yeah, you didn't know about the Holt part. But that was the beginning, baby. That was before we met Emma. Gosh, now I'm going to get in trouble. Um, so, so we kind of had talked to them along the way, and they were resistant. You know, um, I think Luke's exact words were, aren't we enough? 
you know, and then I was like, oh, of course you are, you know, and so we thought, no, we, we, we wouldn't move forward unless, you know, they were at least not adamantly opposed. But uh, one of the websites that his friend who had adopted had suggested was a photo listing of kids specifically with special needs. And so I was just happening to look on it. It's just lists and lists and lists. And there was this one picture of this little girl who turned out to be Emma that just really struck me. There was something very familiar about her. Um, she, the picture was very much of a mixture of Madeline and Luke, and she looks alarmingly like Alex, you know, that it just almost seemed like, you know, she was supposed to be. But, you know, I wasn't going to go anywhere or do anything. You know, I just thought in my mind, oh, I'll just save this little screen and show it to Alex later. Well, Madeline kind of popped up right next to me on the couch, and she's looking at this whole list of little pictures and girls, and all of a sudden she's like, that one, I want her. And she pointed to the same picture that I was planning on for Alex. And that's when I kind of got little chills. We told Luke that maybe her, and he said, is it a girl or a boy? And we said, it's a girl. And he said, no. You know, and we're like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> we'll work on that a little bit. And so anyway, so, you know, we thought about, you know, s submitting application and everything like that. And we did a little preliminary application. And, you know, we thought, boom, we'll know right away. Apparently, there was a waiting list for Emma, um, at least 20 people who were ahead of us considering her file. And so we were kind of at the bottom of the, the line, and we just thought, well, if it's meant to be, it's going to happen, and we'll just kind of wait. Almost three, three weeks went by. And these little ones are kind of praying a little bit, and I'm not verbally praying because, you know, I'm not that brave, and I just didn't want God to say no, and then I'd have to explain to them why he would say no. And so um, three weeks down the line, we looked again, and underneath her name it said, on hold. So I was, we were devastated. I mean, we really believed she was supposed to be ours, and now another family had claimed her, and so what would we do? And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, how do I explain it to these kids? And I just called the agency just to say, you know, if that family that has chosen her decides to back out, we're still interested, so please let us know, because, you know, we were planning on adopting her. We were not going out to save the world. We are not that noble. We were not trying to save an orphan at a time. We were wanting to adopt her because we just firmly believed that she was supposed to be part of our family. Um, and the agency said, oh, you know, she doesn't have a home yet. We've just gotten so much more interest. We had to put that there so no more applications came through because we didn't want to mislead families. So then I was like, oh, my gosh, maybe that's better. And she said, oh, and by the way, we're down to number 20 now. And so she's like, you know, if, if nobody else, if this other family that's really considering her doesn't decide, then on Monday we'll send you her file. So we waited, we waited, we waited, we waited, and then Monday we finally got her file because the other family was still deciding but what hadn't committed yet. And I have to say one thing, and um, she was not abused, and she was not neglected. And I know this is a very he heavy topic to talk about on Sunday, and when they had asked us to talk about Emma and our adoption of her, I absolutely did not want to because I did not want people to think that all those terrible things were happening to her. Um, what we found out in her file was that she was found at approximately four months of age. So she was found March 13, 2010 wrapped in a little fabric uh, blanket in a cardboard box on the sidewalk of a busy street. Um, usually uh, the moms in China, the families in China, you know, um, if they want to save their child, that's what they do. Put the ch child, they take a great risk. If you're caught abandoning your child, you go to jail, and it's kind of like game over. So, but the moms that really want to help their child, they kind of leave them place, someplace that they hope that somebody will find them. The families that are maybe not as um, concerned about the outcome of their child, they, they put them like places that they don't want people to find. So the fact that she was found, um, we all felt like it was because that mom was really wanting to help her. And she, you know, 
has a heart condition, and at that time she was failing, and she was blue, and she was thin, and, and I just really think that the family just really was so scared that she was going to pass, and they wanted help, and so that's why they put her there. So she wasn't abused or neglected. So anyway, so they, they found her and brought her in, and, you know, her heart condition is what had scared off everybody else ahead of us. You know, she has a severe heart defect, you know, um, not to get too medical or anything like that, but instead of four chambers, she only has two. The blood vessels don't go exactly where they're supposed to go. Her heart's on her right side, not on her left side. She doesn't have a spleen, some other things that go along with it, too. And so the reconstruction, even when they told us, and I took her file to our cardiovascular surgeons and cardiologists, they were very... Um, very guarded, because usually the first repair that we do in babies with similar diseases as Emma, we do it within six months of age, and she was now almost two and had not had it, and so they were very concerned that there would be uh, irreparable damage to her lungs, and in that case, there would be no, she would not be a surgical candidate, it would just be palliative care, and then they anticipated her outcome to be five to ten years of age. But when we had gotten the file, the thing that we had thought was, you know, if she was born to us and they told us this outcome, we would still do whatever we could for her. So we were not going to turn her down just because we had an option, because in our mind she was ours and it was not an option. We were just going to have to need to do whatever it was that we needed to do. So we kind of started the process, submitted everything, but we had not told a soul. We didn't tell any of you all, sorry. We didn't tell our family. We didn't tell anybody because, you know, it was kind of a, a new step. And then one of his friend's moms comes to me in school and says, oh, we hear you're adopting. And I was like, excuse me? And the kids were so excited that all the gymnastics mamas knew, you know, all of his friends from school knew. And, you know, it was such an encouraging thing to know that the kids were actually getting a little bit excited that they were sharing it with their friends. So that's when we kind of thought, well, we, we should start telling people so they don't hear it from a different person and such. And... Um, the thing that we were afraid of is telling our, our families because, you know, for those of you that are of Asian descent, you kind of know there's a little stigma with it, and we were kind of afraid as to what they were going to say. And because um, there are little ears here, I'll just say everything that you can imagine an older Korean generation saying, they said, and very loudly and very defiantly and um, basically forbade us to move forward. And it was the hardest thing because there was a time there that we both had to decide who are we going to disobey? Are we going to disobey our parents or are we going to disobey our Lord? You know, and um, it was harder than you thought. We thought, well, of course, we'll choose God. But then the voices were so strong. And, but we ended up saying, you know, this is what we needed to do for our family. And we just really felt like this was our purpose. And if we cowered out right now, we dropped the ball, and we chose the easy life, then we would not be able to live with ourselves. And we'd be such regret. So we just kind of told our family, thank you for your opinions. You know, we respect your decision, but we're sorry, but this is what we need to do. Um, they've come around since then, and they've been very good. But So then we moved ahead, and we started trying to expedite everything, because the pictures that we were getting of Emma, she was getting less and less pink. Her saturations were going down, and so we were getting worried, especially when we knew that there was more time, a sense, a loss, uh, urgent sense of time. So within seven months, we went to China to be able to get her, and we got all of our paperwork approved, and so we were there um, end of January of this year to get her. And I think Alex wanted to say about his time in China. Yes. Oh, It's a lot of information, um, but I, I think you know just the heart of it. You can hear you know that uh, all the things that we've gone through. But um, it's funny, you know, seeing the pictures of her and then actually going over the seer. You'd think that uh, immediately you'd just uh, totally bond with her. But for me, it was a, it was a little bit difficult. I I had one uh, incident as a, when I was a college student. My parents had a family friend who 
whose child actually had um, a heart surgery like this, and, um, you know, that child didn't survive. And that's all I could think of is, wow, we're actually adopting, and wow, this is a seriously ill child. You can kind of tell. I mean, she's a little bluish, and she can't really run or, or uh, do some of the things that you expect a two-year-old to do. So I, I never – we were, we were actually talking about this the other night, and this is the first time I ever shared with her. But um, throughout that first initial meetings, I had a hard time really bonding with her because deep down – I think I had this fear that I'm going to just love her and just accept her and just really latch on to her, and then things aren't going to go well. So it took me a while, really, just to kind of get over that. And But I think once that moment ha- happened, then the the barriers were broken, and I, I, I saw her as one of ours. She's truly one of our family. Um, but, you know... I think it's a, a little struggle um, understanding how much you can truly love a little child until you actually go through the process. And you know, I don't. And to choose to love a child is uh, sometimes it's real easy, sometimes it's real hard. But um, for me, uh, it was a challenge in the beginning. So, but uh, um, Olivia had some more uh, to close. <laughs> Everybody has asked me about her heart condition, and just so that I can let you know what had happened since we... She's a very tidy girl, so she wants to throw away her trash. Um, You know, so we brought her home, and then um, she had uh, her outcome, her echo. Actually, the cardiologists were much more encouraged after they actually examined her and saw her. Her saturations when she came home were 70 to 69%, and you're supposed to be 95 or higher. Um... And she would fatigue. We'd go up the slightest stairs, and she would literally have to stop, bend over, and huff and puff because she was so out of breath. Um, but when they did the echo, they actually were smiling, and they were very optimistic. She had no evidence of lung injury. The single ventricle that she had was her left ventricle, which is a much stronger ventricle than her right ventricle, which they thought initially she had had. And they, her outcome, they thought, was much more optimistic than what they had uh, initially had told us. So we were so pleased um, and so thankful. And she had her surgery on April 2nd. She apparently set a little record because we were home in five days, and they were not anticipating us to go home that early. They found reasons to try to keep us longer, but then they said, you just need to go home because she's playing all the time. So we were so thankful, and we were able to come home. She does have a large kidney stone, um, so we have to go later on this month and get that taken out, and she needs one more stage surgery for her heart in about two, hopefully two years or so, but then after that, they're really hopeful that she'll actually be able to be okay. Um, and so for that, we're so thankful. And, um, you know, thank you guys all for praying for her when she had her heart surgery, specifically for our CG. Um, who there were many times there that we were just so discouraged and frustrated, they literally put us on their shoulders and carried us through. And so for that, we're so thankful. Um, you know, I, I, I want to say also one thing, if I may. Um, please don't think that highly of us. You know, people have said some things that are just... I, we, I, I don't even know what to, we're not that good. You know, we did not do a noble thing. We did more, for me, a selfish thing. We wanted her so much that we didn't want anybody else to have her. You know, and so that's why we went out to China to get her. We, we are not at a certain level of spiritual maturity that you can do this because we were definitely not there. And if you get to know us very well, you'll realize that we're definitely not there either. Um, but it was just something that she was a Kim. 
She just happened to be born in China, and it was our job to bring her home. And that's kind of all how we felt about it. And, um, you know, please don't feel sorry for her. Um, I know she's got some challenges and everything like that, but she's a mighty little little, little cookie. Um, God has done so many things, and he, she is overcoming because he has overcome. And so please don't just treat her like everybody else. Please don't. Don't coddle her too much. Um, and then I guess the last thing that I'll say, especially since it's Blue Sunday, you know, one thing I think that we have learned is that, you know, Jesus really does love all the children of the world, you know, and not just the children from the country of your national heritage. He loves all the children, you know, red, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious in his sight. He loves all the children of the world. And I think because of Emma, our family is learning to do the same. And, and for that, we're, we're just very thankful. So thank you. I think you want to say something? Oh, no, that's okay. That's okay. Did you want to say something? No, okay. Well, she wanted to say something, but I think she's changed her mind. Luke, did you want to say something? Maddie was supposed to say that, like, she loves Emma and she, she thinks that she's really funny and she loves when she's dizzy because then she, like, walks into things and walks backward. And she doesn't really like it when Emma's, like, crying and stubborn. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right. Well, let me finish with this. Uh, so what can we do? So, you know... That God gives children as gifts. What can we do? We know that we are called to shepherd children, not just our own, not just the kids in our church, but to really go out there and rescue those that we can. I think the first thing we need to do is just to get informed. There are tons of movies out there, books, organizations. I have some here. I'm not going to share them with you all. But if you want to know, uh, when you watch these movies, you're going to cry. When you read these books, you're going to cry. Uh, it comes with a cost. It's not easy to rescue children, as we've learned. But it's something that God calls us to do. And we also need to recognize, you know what, you don't have to be a superhero. You don't have to be Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. You just have to be you and who you are and the place where God has put you. Like uh, Alex and Olivia mentioned, sometimes just being a part of a small group, encouraging someone else to be a rescuer, is the very thing that God has called you to do. God doesn't call everyone to adopt. There are millions upon millions of kids who need it. But he doesn't call everyone to do that. But it's a thing that every one of us can at least participate in in some way, shape, or form. But I also think we need to act. And I know last week we talked about prayer. Uh, if you have the resources and you just tell someone, I'll pray for you, that's wrong. Well, the truth is, in terms of all of these things, we don't have the resources. The only resource that we really have is God. The only resource that we have is prayer. To actually pray that God will raise the church up people within the church to get up there and do the little things that God is calling them to do and the medium things that God is calling them to do and the big things that God is calling them to do. And for those who are doing the big things, sometimes those people who are the medium people or the smaller people are the very people who support us to get us done and to do what God wants us to do. That's really what God is asking us to do. And let's pray. But one thing I also want to encourage you is this. When you see... Some woman on the street do not always judge. And this is important because that woman may very well be a slave who has no power whatsoever. 
Because what they do is they trick these women to come to the United States. Then they take their passports and say, if you tell on us, we will take you to the cops. If you go to the cops, they can't be trusted. And when we take you to the cops and we're going to say that you don't have any passport and you're here and you're illegal, you're going to be deported. So don't make a quick judgment and say, oh, that sleazy woman deserves it because that's a lifestyle choice that she has made because it isn't always true and more often than not is not true at all. And then as Church of God, be sensitive to what God is asking us to do. Because if the government is not going to do something, not because they don't want to, but just because they can't, we can do something. Because we do have resources in God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the heart that you have for children is so great, so grand, so filled with a, a, a love that we pray that we will experience it as well. Father, may we have your heart and your mind for our own children. Father, I would pray for any parent here who is struggling with keeping their control, struggling with keeping their temper. Father, I would ask, give them strength. May we as a church family come alongside them and support them. Father, we also pray for people here who are adults experienced some form of abuse, physical, verbal, or even sexual. And even today, still struggle through the pains and the memories. And maybe have buried those things and they've come up today. Father, I would ask that you'd bring wisdom and comfort to them. And Father, I would pray for this church as a whole to be sensitive to your leading in our lives. To be willing to do whatever it takes in order to rescue children, the children that you love, the children that you have given as gifts. Father, give us wisdom. Give us strength. Give us courage. And when the cost seems to be too high, let us remember the cost that you paid in order to adopt us into your family. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.